and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm John Tanza on this live broadcast from Washington. Here are some of the top stories making news across Sudan and South Sudan this Thursday, January 11, 2023. The director of the World Health Organization says the international community should not forget the people in Sudan and Ethiopia. In the past month, half a million more people have been displaced from Al Jazeera state due to spread of the conflict. The state used to be a safe haven from the conflict in Khartoum and is a hub for WHO's operations. Due to security concerns, WHO has temporarily altered its operations in Al Jazeera. And Nigerian president slashes down the number of international government travels. Government ministers must cut down uh, their own uh, officials who accompany them. Uh, not just government ministers, even very senior government officials like permanent secretaries and, and others who are in touch to such uh, foreign and local travels. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. While the worsening health conditions in Gaza continue to dominate world headlines, World Health Organization warns medical emergencies in conflict-ridden Sudan and Ethiopia must not be forgotten. The chief of World Health Organization, Tedros, says humanitarian aid is prevented from reaching people in desperate need, putting many lives at risk. Lisa Schrein reports from Geneva. WHO officials say they are concerned that the world focus on the catastrophe unfolding in the Gaza Strip is diverting attention away from the plight of millions of people suffering from increasing violence, mass displacement, and the spread of diseases in Sudan and Ethiopia. In a briefing Wednesday, WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said the situation in Sudan continues to deteriorate after nine months of conflict. In the past month, half a million more people have been displaced from Al Jazeera state due to spread of the conflict. The state used to be a safe haven from the conflict in Khartoum and is a hub for WHO's operations. Due to security concerns, WHO has temporarily altered its operations in Al Jazeera. Even before the conflict between the Sudanese armed forces and paramilitary rapid support forces erupted in mid-April, many people in Sudan suffered from food insecurity. Tedro said the situation has become unimaginably worse. An estimated 3.5 million children under five, one in seven, are acutely malnourished, and more than 100,000 are suffering from severe acute malnutrition, requiring hospitalization. At the same time, Sudan is suffering from an outbreak of cholera with around 9,000 cases and 245 cases. Tedros said Ethiopia's northwestern region of Amhara has been badly affected by conflict since April. He said the Internet in the region is cut off, preventing aid agencies from communicating with each other and with the Ethiopian authorities. Restrictions on movement are impeding the provision of humanitarian assistance. Fighting is affecting access to health facilities, either through damage or destruction, roadblocks, and other obstacles. Conflict, drought, and displacement are driving widespread hunger and disease outbreaks, including media reports of near famine conditions in Tigray and Amhara.
The WHO chief is appealing for unimpeded access to the affected areas so humanitarian agencies can assess the needs and respond accordingly. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Still on United Nations issues, the World Food Program is encouraging South Sudanese farmers in northern Bahar al-Ghazal and Warab states to grow rice in flooded areas of the two states. The head of WHO program in our will, Solomon Telham, tells VOA's Carol Van Damme that the UN's initiative could change lives in flood-prone parts of South Sudan. The Rise to the Rescue initiative was initiated by WFP Asset and Livelihood Project as part of the climate adaptation. South Sudan, especially this area, has been affected by flood for the last many years. And uh, I was practically here for the last six years and almost five of the years there have been flood times of floods and because of that we were looking how to support the households and the rice initiative came in as a part of WFP asset creation and the livelihood targeting households to produce rice instead of as part of climate adaptation normally northern Bargazal is a sorghum and uh, groundnut which is not doing well during the uh, flood season. And uh, this initiative targeted the uh, household support communities to improve in their livelihood. Can you describe exactly how this um, this rice growing scheme works in South Sudan? We have targeting house initially, and uh, this rice production at household level was not there because the rice scheme was only concentrated in one location, which is owned by government. It's a national project, and because of the massive funding requirement to reactivate it, it was established sometime back in the old days, and it was not functioning well. But WFP, as part of our program, we took it to the community at household level, engaging the households to produce rice as part of the climate resilience. And mm-hmm. this was not only in Northern Bergazal, it was also in, in Warap State in Kwajok, and uh, we are in the same belt of flood-affected uh, areas, and uh, we targeted households with our program, and uh, it came out very successful in a way that even during the, with the kind of a minimum rainfall, the rice has managed to really produce more than the sorghum. You know, when you talk about sorghum as opposed to rice, rice isn't a regular commodity there usually, is it? Rice is uh, coming as a new initiative by WP with the households as for people to cope with the climate. And we are not changing the whole dynamics of their production system. And we are introducing a new area where they can also cultivate rice. The traditional way of cultivating sorghum, they are doing it. And we are also introducing this rice because sorghum is not doing well in flat-prone areas. So this year, we targeted around 1,200 families. And uh, in the first year of our piloting, it has resulted a significant, significant acceptance from the community.
You are listening to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. A U.S.-based nonprofit is working with the government of Rwanda to provide free surgical care to women who are suffering from obstetric fistula, restoring not only their health but also their dignity. Julie Toba has more. It's a joyous occasion for these Rwandan women on this rainy day in the capital, Kigali. They are welcoming a U.S. team here to help women suffering from obstetric fistula and other gynecological issues. One of those women is Julianne Nirondinabo, who became incontinent after her bladder was damaged during childbirth. Fistula caused me depression. I couldn't earn money or perform physical tasks. I even struggled to care for my child, depending on my husband for our needs. An obstetric fistula is a hole that can form between the mother's birth canal and her bladder or rectum during prolonged or obstructed labor or a badly performed cesarean section. This devastating injury can cause a woman to continuously leak urine, feces, or both. It can cause her great pain and emit a strong odor that often leads to feelings of shame and social isolation. Nirandi Nabo's fistula was repaired by an all-volunteer surgical team assembled by the U.S. nonprofit International Organization for Women and Development. But not all fistula victims are so lucky. More than 2 million women live with untreated obstetric fistula in Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, according to the World Health Organization. Barbara Margolis is founder and executive director of the organization. When you have fistula, trust me, it is one of the worst situations a woman could possibly have. She's treated like she has leprosy. No one wants to be near her. She smells all the time. Her children don't want to be near her. Her husband sometimes can even leave. So we're here to fix that. The team visits Rwanda three times a year and works closely with the government, which has been providing assistance and medical students for training since 2010. Medical student Christy Marie Bibian Ruamo has been part of the fistula repair program since 2022. Fistula patients uh, come in a vulnerable state. After their surgeries, they are smiling, grateful, and they are excited to, to go home. Improving women's health impacts not only them, but also their families and communities. We know that women are the basis for a strong family structure. And if a woman is healthy and happy and has her dignity back, we know that family will be successful. The team's holistic approach contributes to that success. Dr. Richard Nyongabo has been working with a U.S. group for six years. We don't treat the diseases, we treat the people. So after, after, after the treatment, some of them were able, uh, they were able to help them to start some small, small businesses. Some of them, younger ones, were given tuition fees to go back to school. There's also a strong focus on education and hands-on training. We want this to be a sustainable project so that when we finally go home, the Rwandans can take care of their own. Julianne Nirandinabo would agree. I encourage women not to hide their condition and to seek medical help. Fistula is a treatable condition and there is hope for recovery. Together with their partners in Rwanda, International Organization for Women and Development has examined more than 4,500 women and children and performed about 1,400 fistula and prolapse surgeries. 
life-changing treatment that is not only repairing bodies, but restoring dignity. Julie Tabo, VOA News. listening to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Coming up, Gabon's military leader receives support from civil society. Find out why after the break. Hey folks, I'm Mark Bill Yabaro, and I have some electrifying news for you. AFCON 2023 is here, and I'll be at Ivory Coast covering all things AFCON for VOA Africa. We'll have exciting coverage on radio, TV, and all of our digital platforms. Make sure you check out voaafrica.com for AFCON updates. Stay locked right here on VOA Africa. think people speak out on important questions the question today what is the best advice you have ever gotten what's advice from my mom she encouraged me to work hard that she told me and a very successful woman is a very hard-working woman the great one i can remember is the one my father gave to me to study hard actually he was on his i can say maybe a deathbed he was so ill he had stroke and he was so helpless he couldn't do anything for me that was the last day i even saw him he was like my son study hard is from my father um he, he has always told me that um, i shouldn't be afraid to learn new things and to take up new challenges because he said that you're only afraid to take up new challenges when you haven't tried it. What do you think? A daily discussion of important questions from VOA. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. We have some latest information here about uh, Gambia Afcon emergency landing. A plane taking football players from Gambia to Ivory Coast for the Africa Cup of Nations had to turn around just nine minutes after takeoff and make an emergency landing as passengers began falling asleep from lack of oxygen and cabin pressure. Gambia's squad set off from Bonjul yesterday on a short trip to Yamasukro, where they will play their opening two group games. Gambia coach Tom St. Fate said the pilot likely recognized the problem. A statement from the Gambia Football Federation said preliminary investigations indicated there was a loss of cabin pressure and oxygen. St. Fate said his players are still struggling with nausea and headaches today, but they were due to depart at 4 p.m. local time. Gambia played their opening group games, uh, opening Group C game in Yamasukro on Monday against defending champions Senegal. Still in West Africa, opposition and civil society groups are rallying in support of Gabon's coup leader. This after a bloc of Central African states refused to lift the sanctions they imposed after the military ousted President Ali. Bongo Ali Ben Bongo at the end of August. Moki Edwin Kinzika reports from Yaoundé. 
There were demonstrations this week in the Gabonese cities of Libreville, Oyem, and Franceville as civil society groups call for an end to sanctions, including Gabon's suspension from the Central African Economic and Monetary Community, CEMAC, and Economic Community of Central African States, ACARS. Gabon was suspended from the economic blocks on September 1, two days after General Brice Oligingema ousted President Bongo in a bloodless coup. In a New Year's message, Oligi said he rescued Gabon from the iron-fisted rule of Bongo, restored political stability, and is improving delivery of water, electricity, and health care. He said most of Gabon's debts have been settled within his four months of rule. Opposition parties say the junta leader has also liberated scores of political prisoners, invited exiled opposition leaders and critics back to the country, and is fighting against corruption that characterized the Ali Bongo regime. They say he should be given time to organize elections and say the international sanctions should be lifted immediately. Jean Delors Bitoge B. Ntuku is a political scientist and researcher at the Libreville headquarters Oma Bongo University. On prive le Gabon d'une tribune au, au niveau international et on rend sa voix. He says the sanctions deprive Gabon of expressing opinions on topical, local, regional and international issues and render the Central African state's voice inaudible when countries meet during summits and conferences to discuss peace, security, the well-being of civilians, and international cooperation. He says Gabon, like any other nation, wants to take part in discussions that shape the future of the world. The military junta recently sent delegations to the United Nations, CEMAC, and ECAS member states to press for the lifting of the sanctions. Oligi said the coup was essential because it prevented bloodshed from Gabon's opposition, which said Bongo stole their victory in Gabon's August 26 election. In remarks to protesters, Oligi said he was surprised the diplomatic outreach didn't work. Nestor Obiang Zoki, an expert in governance and development policy, and an advisor to the ousted president's Gabonese Democratic Party says if Gabon's military respects its promise to hand power to civilian rule, sanctions imposed by the international community will be lifted. Nzogi says Central Africa's leaders who have clung to power for decades are reluctant to lift sanctions on Gabon for fear of setting a president for military takeovers. He says Equatorial Guinea President Teodoro Obiangema, who has ruled for about 45 years, Cameroon's President Paul Bia, who has been in power for 41 years, and Congo's Denis Sassungesu, who has been President for about 40 years, may think that lifting sanctions and openly accepting General Oligi as Gabon's president can act as an encouragement for militaries in their countries to also seize power. In November, Gabon's military government announced a program to organize free, transparent, and credible elections 
to restore civilian rule by August 2025. The military leaders say before such elections, the sovereign people of Gabon will meet in a national dialogue in April 2024 to, among other things, adopt the transition plan. Moki Edwin Kinzaka, VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. From Cameroon, we move to Nigeria, where President Bola Ahmed Tinubu has made a 60% cut in official domestic and international travel. The Daily Post of Nigeria reports that only 20 persons will accompany the president on foreign trips, while the vice president and the first lady will have five. A federal minister can only travel with four members of his or her staff. Information Minister Mohamed Idris Malagi tells VOS James Batty that President Tenubu is concerned about the high cost of official trips and wants to use the money to finance his renewed hope of economic agenda. The president this morning uh, issued a directive to uh, government officials to cut down on the number of personnel, especially senior government officials, including himself, the vice president, uh, and the office of the first lady. This is all aimed at cutting down costs because uh, Nigeria is in bare need of resources to deliver on the renewed hope agenda. And so he thought that uh, instead of just asking uh, other people to make sacrifices, he should start with his own. And after all, uh, in the case of the president, wherever he goes uh, within Nigeria, there are still um, security uh, agencies in the states that can uh, help protect him. So he thought that it is no longer necessary that uh, a large uh, number of uh, officials keep uh, following him about. So that's what this was all about. So the president also is saying that... Uh... People who accompany him on foreign trips, he's cutting that number down. Yes. Uh, so what, what was it like before? Because it, it says here that the president, 20 persons, is that correct? But what was it like before? Well, I, I can give you the numbers, uh, you know, uh, offhand now. But I do know that uh, whatever the numbers uh, were, uh, the president thought that was a little bit much. And then he was now cutting it down so that... Uh, uh, as again, I said earlier, uh, government can cut down revenue uh, to free resources for, you know, for, for government projects. What is it like for government ministers? Yes, government ministers inclusive. Uh, he's issued a directive that government ministers must cut down uh, their own uh, officials who accompany them. Uh, not just government ministers, even very senior government officials like permanent secretaries and, and others who are entitled to such uh, foreign and local travels. Uh, the, the idea is that uh, uh, you know government must begin to show responsibility by uh, bringing down uh, cost of governance uh, in, in that direction so that uh, resources can be freed for, 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 for Nigerians who have benefits of democracy. And so this is because of uh, current economic situation for Nigeria? Well, it's a, it's a it's both uh, the economic uh, situation, yes, but the uh, government is also trying to uh, to cut down uh, costs. Uh, he, he feels that uh, there's the need to show some modesty in the way uh, public officials conduct themselves in both local and international travels. Thank you so much. Uh, it's so nice to talk with you. Thank you, Mr. Buti. That's Nigeria's Information Minister Mohamed Idris Malagi. He spoke with my colleague James Bati earlier today. Last month, the former head of the election commission in the Democratic Republic of Congo allied himself with the M23 rebel group. 
Corneli Nanga, former chairperson of the Electoral Commission, known as CENI, signed an agreement in Nairobi with the M23 and other militants, prompting an angry response from the Democratic Republic of Congo government. VOS Douglas Mpugwa has this report with contribution from my colleague Peter Clotty. The M23 is one of the largest of the more than 100 militant groups operating in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. It says it's defending the rights of ethnic Tutsis. However, its raids on communities and use of mass executions and sexual assault as weapons have led the United States and the United Nations to designate it a terror organization. The Kinshasa government has struggled for two decades to bring peace to the vast country's eastern provinces. However, its failure to do so has led to rising anger against United Nations peacekeeping forces there, and Kinshasa late last year ended a joint stabilization force of troops from the East African Community Nations. Last month, the M23 and some smaller rebel groups joined with Cornel Nanga, former chairman of the DRC Electoral Commission, to create the Congo River Alliance. Abraham Lokabonga is a spokesperson for the Union for Democracy and Social Progress, Shishkedi's party. He says there is considerable anger over Nanga's alliance with rebels and called it a rebellion. We are really, um, you know, surprised with uh, this uh, this kind of, uh, you know, kind of situation that Mr. Nanga is calling on the table. And uh, we do... Uh, Encourage the government we, uh, that wrote a letter to uh, authorities of Kenya asking them, you know, to uh, to stop Mr. Nanga out of uh, our constitution. You cannot take arms, you know, to fight against your, your country. This is uh, Nanga is a new rebel for uh, rebel leaders since he has uh, get in touch with the M23. This situation is not good at all. And we condemn that uh, situation firmly. Lawrence Kanyuka, spokesman for the M23, called the alliance a platform for peace. Which has with goal to end the suffering of Congolese, the bad governance, to restore the dignity of Congolese, to resolve the root causes of conflict for a lasting place in our country. is actually a good thing that has never happened to DRC. Finally, we have somebody of that caliber of uh, Mr. Nukone Nanga. We join forces with M23, with other politicians to actually end the suffering of Congolese. This platform is open to all Congolese. Can you also say that areas under M23 control are peaceful and stable? However, human rights groups have documented scores of cases of mass rapes, murder, and other possible war crimes over the past two years. Nanga had intended to run in last month's presidential election in the DRC. He had been in several disputes with President Felix Sheshkedi, who was running for re-election. Nanga went into exile a few months after declaring his candidacy. I'm looking for some people who's looking for peace. Maybe together we could make the war cease. Now we can send mankind to the moon. That's all we prepared for you this Thursday, January 11, 2024. We now leave you with Emmanuel Jal and the song We Want Peace.
I'm your host, John Tanza, on this live broadcast from Studio 14 here in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Nabil Biagio, and engineer, Bill Andrat, we wish you a lovely evening, and remember to join us tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Nobody cares about the poor and needy. Too busy sucking up through the rich and the green.